0: This week on Wealth Track, the lasting impact of COVID-19 on economies and markets.
1: Banks had to learn the hard way that they had to reserve more for bad loans 11 years ago. And I think now the rest of society, businesses, and also us as individuals are gonna have to learn how to reserve more for bad outcomes. And I think we will, uh, partly out of fear, but partly just out of prudence.
0: Financial thought leader, Jason Trenert, assesses potential long-term winners and losers this week on Consuelo Mack Wealth
1: Track. Funding provided by Morgan LeFay Dreams Foundation, Clearbridge Investments, a Legg Mason company, Miller Value Funds, Royce and Associates, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, Strategus Asset Management, and Eaton Vance. <music>
0: Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. And yes, I am recording from the comfort of my home. I am one of the fortunate ones who can work from home. I realize that many Americans are not able to do so. It is a different world for all of us. Our guest this week is a financial thought leader who has been reflecting on how much the COVID-19 pandemic is changing our lives and what the long-term implications are for society, the economy, and investing. He is Jason Trenert, co-founder, managing partner, and chief investment strategist of Strategus Research Partners, which has been voted a top macro research provider by institutional investors for several years in a row. Strategus also provides asset management in separate accounts for institutions and high net worth individuals. You might have noticed that Strategus is one of our more recent sponsors, but that is not a reason to exclude them. Trenert has been a regular WealthTrack guest since our launch in 2005 and will continue to be with us because of his and his team's outstanding research and market acumen. I asked Trenert to address some of the profound changes he expects because of COVID-19.
1: I've written a couple of essays over the last couple of weeks uh, about freedom in a fractional reserve society. And, and the idea, generally speaking, is that we all live our lives with some sort of balance between security and freedom. And, and most of us, like banks, don't reserve for every terrible thing that could possibly happen to us, um, especially in the United States where there's so much plenty. Um, now, I think, though, um, banks had to learn the hard way that they had to reserve more for bad loans 11 years ago And I think now the rest of society, businesses, and also us as individuals are gonna have to learn how to reserve more for bad outcomes. And I think we will, uh, partly out of fear, but partly just out of prudence.
0: So the higher reserves can mean a lot. So for individuals, that's like higher savings rates, right?
1: Precisely, uh, more conservative investments, Um, being Careful about how much you might spend on education, or how much how much debt you incur to get an uh, education. Um, there, there are a lot of I I believe potentially profound changes to the way we've been doing things as businesses and individuals that that will will come out of this.
0: Right. So you've you've actually uh, written to your clients, you know, a list of potential losers and from the pandemic and also. Potential gainers, and you and I both feel very strongly that the the real losers are the people uh, who have gotten COVID nineteen, um, and their oh, families, course. and and also uh, the people who have lost their jobs and and their livelihoods and all of the small businesses that are risk. So this has just had huge, a tr- very damaging uh, impact on so many people and so many fronts. It's just uh, you know it's it's. Uh, it's unimaginable, and that's one of those things that no one could possibly have built up enough reserves for. So that's just for starters.
1: Precisely. Um, I think, listen, I think globalization has been one of the bigger drivers of economic growth and lower inflation over the last 20 years. And I, I do think now, in terms of reserving for bad outcomes, I think globalization, to a certain extent, will end uh, not entirely but will slow down and I think there's certain uh, industries let's say like pharmaceuticals where it's it's it is unimaginable a year from now that 85 percent of our antibiotics will be sourced in some way through China that will just that will not exist politically both the left and the right I think are are um, in agreement on that and I think the American people will be in agreement on that as well so there's going to be there's you know, China, to me, is a big loser, very specifically.
0: China is on your list, as a matter of fact. So globalization is right. on your list, and China is definitely on your list as well.
1: So much of China's economy is driven by exports. And I think that in many ways, uh, a lot of people in the United States, at least, also in the West, largely felt that it was a fair trade to um, be able to buy consumer products very cheaply uh, in exchange for perhaps giving up some manufacturing at home, perhaps giving up some manufacturing jobs at home. And now I think the amount of anger um, that is going to be directed towards China and real questions about its political system are going to be such that it, it's um, China is going to have a hard time rebuilding the trust that it had built up for a while. Um, President Trump was seen as kind of, you know, very... Um, uh, almost kooky in this idea three and a half years ago, and it's becoming more of a mainstream uh, idea now.
0: Globalization has been taking has been criticized for a number of years now, and as has China as part of that. This time, you think the because of the global pandemic, it it really the criticism has legs and will actually lead to concrete actions, right? I
1: think so. I think. It was you know globalization is very good for corporate profits right and also very good for consumers but i think um the populism the move towards populism probably was some indication a couple of years ago that it had gone too far that we had probably exported too many jobs or exported and i'm a free trader but i also think it's it's safe to say that china wasn't precisely the most free trade country that you could deal with. There are a lot of issues in terms of intellectual property, the currency, uh, and the like. So now I think more and more people are, are questioning that, and it's going to be hard to go back to where we were. I think China is going to find it very difficult um, to, to do that, uh, with, particularly with Western countries.
0: You also think that the euro, that's on your list of potential losers as well. Why is the euro... Vulnerable.
1: I think the euro, I, I think there, there's always been a problem with having uh, a monetary union, but no fiscal union. And I think particularly Italy, I would argue, just as somebody who spends a fair amount of time there and knows a little bit about the country, um, Italy, I think, was, o- was always questioning the value of being part of the euro. The, the good news was that they got lower interest rates. Um, the bad news is you lose some sovereignty. And Mm -hmm. now, within the country, there's a lot of questions about how good the euro has been for them, because they've been really, unfortunately, at the epicenter of the COVID crisis. And yet, they still have an inability, let's say, to go into deficit spending or do other things that they would normally be able to do if they were just on their own. Uh, Normally, the currency would weaken or they would raise a lot of debt. And now there's a lot of tensions between Italy and Germany and the Netherlands and other countries that are more creditor countries versus a country like Italy, and I think those tensions are going to be more apparent now.
0: So if the European Union, for instance, decides, in Germany, mainly, uh, that that they're going to, you know, give more aid to Italy and be more forgiving about the rules that the European Union has established for them. Do you think uh, that that can repair the damage, or do you think the damage is done?
1: Well, I think it can repair the damage. It's just that I think that the the initial response was was much too little, and I would say not particularly empathetic. And now, of course, just like anything else, uh, when you make a mistake, it generally costs you more. And I think Germany understands, in particular, understands the, um, what they're playing with here, the, the potential risks to the Eurozone experiment uh, if they don't help out countries like Italy that have structural unemployment rates of over 9% before this happened. Uh, the Lord only knows what it would look like after this.
0: Uh, another loser on your list uh, and something that you've been talking about you know, for a number of years are illiquid alternative investments. So why are illiquid alternative investments you know, going to be particularly hard hit in this, yeah, I, uh, after the global I, pandemic?
1: The original premise for, for private equity was that you could buy equity stakes in companies more cheaply than you could in publicly traded companies. And that was true when the industry really got uh, really became an investable institutional investment class in in the mid '90s. Um, the problem was over time in, in some ways the opacity of the product became a big part of the selling uh, yes. the appeal you, you, there was a perceived lack of uh, volatility. The problem now is that that works until you get into a liquidity issue and a massive recession like we have now there's a reason why liquidity trades at a premium uh, it's because it's safer and uh, and so in some ways this is part of the fractional reserve idea that I had before people are going to want to have more access to liquid investments and I think private equity is going to have to use some of their as they say dry powder their their excess capital to prop up some of their smaller uh, businesses that um, did not and could not have possibly expected a recession of this depth.
0: On your list as well is high-priced college education. And you can say that as a Wharton graduate. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. Um, All right. So, yeah. so
0: you were part of the generation uh, that, right, that did go to a high-priced college. Right. Um, so why do you think that's going to be questioned now even more?
1: I would say probably that, you know, the top 100 or 200 schools will probably do fine. They have big endowments um, and they, they'll probably, there's a certain snob appeal that will allow them to, to charge uh, largely what they wish. But I do right. think there's a number of things that are working against uh, college education. First is simply the price. Secondly, um, the people who are tending to pay full price, a lot of, in many instances, tend to be foreign students. Uh, particularly Chinese students, so I think that's going to be something that's at risk. And then also, a lot of universities get tend to get a lot of aid from states and local uh, municipalities, and so their um, their finances are also under pressure. I think the consumers, the students, and their parents are just going to think more about what they're spending and what they're getting in return.
0: Final losers on your losers potential losers list was small government, and that is a huge change, what we're seeing with the fiscal stimulus and the stimulus from the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve getting involved in markets that they've never been involved in before, municipal bond markets, high-yield bond market. So explain uh, the era of small government.
1: We were running trillion-dollar deficits before this happened, and now, of course, you've just passed uh, close to um, you're, it's going to be close to three trillion dollars in in just deficit spending. Uh, you're going to add that to what we would already uh, been spending. So you're you're going to be looking at a, a, an amount of debt that's uh, in the you know 10 to 20 percent of GDP uh, range, and that's that's a lot of money. It'll, it'd be diff- it'll be interesting to see how that is resolved, how that's taken back eventually, because politicians most of the time get elected by giving things away, not by taking things away. And and it, to me, it seems very appropriate to spend the money now. I will say that. But, but taking it back on the other side, I think, will be difficult.
0: One of the potential winners from the global pandemic, you believe, is onshoring, actually bringing businesses back to the U.S., uh, and also domestic labor. So explain- why? Why you, right. you think that? I
1: think you know, there, there's two reasons here. One, I think, is that, um, as a, we were talking about before, I think there's just a perceived risk in having certain goods not be produced in the United States. I think before there was general feeling that, that a very globalized world, one world, um, there was really very little risk, let's say, in having antibiotics being produced in China. Now right. that's going to change. There's going to be a lot of focus on, on goods, antibiotics is an easy one, but there'll be other goods as well that people uh, people will say in the United States, policymakers will say, it's okay if we spend more on these goods uh, to produce them here because they're vitally important to our, our national security. And I think there'll be other, you know, it could be steel, it could be, there could be a, a lot of other goods too, where people will say, does it make sense that we're beholden to foreign countries that might not necessarily have our our best interests at hand, uh, and I think you're going to see more of a movement. The other reason why that will happen, in my opinion, is that the unemployment rate on the other side of this will be quite high, and so from that's an added uh, impetus uh, for policymakers to try to onshore uh, some of these some of these goods to, to, to provide our own people with jobs.
0: You know, you're on Wall Street. I mean, do you you know feel that? Wall Street and investors will allow companies to be less profitable if they, you know, I mean, figure out uh, there are other reasons to uh, to do business uh, in, a, in a in a certain way uh, that aren't necessarily going to add to the bottom line.
1: It's a great it's a great question, and I think I, as a, a die in the wool Wall Streeter, I, I have to say my own opinion is that Wall Street probably has had too much say in. Okay. Um, in these types of policies. And it has been balanced. And of course, and again, I'm a free trader, and I believe in the incentive system and corporate profits and all all the rest of it. But I also think that you have to balance those things with other ideas, other ideals that are important um, for the country. I I think the U.S. in particular is the biggest market. And so there'll be pressure brought to bear on a lot of these companies, if they want to continue to enjoy certain other privileges uh, that they've had in the past, whether with regard to taxes or all the rest of it, there is some leverage, whether it's a Republican or a Democratic administration, there'll be some leverage that politicians will have to get companies to produce more things, certain goods here in the United States.
0: Right. Jason, nationalism and populism, you think they're potential winners?
1: I do. I think it goes hand in hand, really, in many ways, with um, uh, a rejection or a rethinking of globalization. And I think, um, and also, as I talked about with the euro, even within the euro, I think people are going to start thinking a little bit more about uh, their sovereignty. Um, and I do think that, listen, with uh, Brexit and, and President Trump being elected three and a half years ago, populism and nationalism was already, I, I think, Part of the program. And I think an event like this will probably only hasten its arrival.
0: Here's an investment asset that you mentioned as a potential winner as well, and that is gold, which has been a winner recently. So is it as a safe haven, a tangible asset? I mean, why do you think gold will retain its appeal?
1: Yeah, I think the main reason why it's going up. Um, Consuelo, is that it, people are worried about all of the stimulus that is being provided by both central banks uh, and federal governments. And I think people are genuinely concerned, I, and I think correctly, uh, about the value of fiat currencies and paper currencies. Now, you know, gold is one of those things I think I, I tend to view it as an insurance policy. It's something mm-hmm. you don't want to have to use. You're, you don't want right. to have, have to have it pay off. But by the same token, I always think, especially now, I, I tend to think it's a good idea to have some of your assets in gold, because the amount of stimulus that's being provided is so, uh, is so large that it is possible that uh, ultimately, five years from now, 10 years from now, this could be inflationary. And I think that's part of the reason why gold is getting a bid.
0: Public equities, another potential winner, you think, despite all of the volatility, and you feel very strongly that volatility uh, is something that we're paying much too much attention to. So why do you think public equities are going to uh, kind of once again come? Yeah, I mean,
1: I think that um, it's mainly it goes back to the idea that uh, a lot of fiduciaries tended to undervalue liquidity and and thought that um, just because something was illiquid, they tended to view it as less risky. And as we're finding out, that's not always true. And um, I think that public equities, if you tend to look at some of the big endowments, like Harvard, they have uh, investments that are far greater in liquid private securities than they do in liquid public equities. Uh, and in my opinion, there's going to be a reevaluation of that. So they'll, they'll, you can get access to a higher returning assets. They're riskier assets, like equities, Uh, but you'll also have the liquidity, too. The the trade-off is that you'll have to deal with greater observed volatility, but I would argue the volatility was always there. It's just that it wasn't being measured.
0: Why wasn't that lesson learned uh, during the global financial crisis when endowments like Harvard's, uh, I mean, I know you said in a report they had to float bonds because they couldn't get out of their illiquid investments uh, in order to you know, fund their operations. I mean.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, again, you know, we're all part of the same hypocrisy on, on this, which is to say that we all, you know, all of us tend to think most about keeping our jobs a- and first, and then other stuff after that. And so I'm not casting aspersions on anyone, but the, the main appeal of some of these illiquid investments was that it would help you avoid embarrassment as at the next meeting and so um, they wouldn't they would just tend to go up. Uh, and of course it's it, life doesn't really work that way and I think um, so that that to me that you actually saw an increase in interest in illiquid investments after the financial crisis. It's one of the kind of the great it's um, uh, In some ways, it's a mystery, but in other ways, it's not a mystery because people, again, were largely focused on, uh, on avoiding embarrassment.
0: Right. And now we're going to talk your own book, Jason, okay. essentially. And that is, you've been saying for a long time that one of the winners is going to be active management. Right. So those are your clients. That's right. Um, so, you know, why now, uh, you know, 10 years after you've been saying, and as many other people have uh, in the investment industry, that stock picking is once again going to prove to be a superior type of investing?
1: Well, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that the cost of capital will be more variable and higher. I think, um, now I've been saying this for a long time, and again, s- consider the source because uh, all of my clients are active managers. So I just, I want all of your viewers to understand that I'm not right. coming at this with, as completely, uh, you know, uninterested party, but I, I really believe this, i am not just saying it. But I do think one of the things that was very hard about stock picking was that the cost of capital was so low because interest rates were kept so low that there was very little distinction made between strong companies and weak companies. They all got to stay in business and very few, very, very few bankruptcies over the last 11 years when interest rates are very low. Now you have such an enormous shock to the system with this recession uh, that there is gonna be greater dispersion between strong companies and weak companies, which is what active managers are charged with doing. And it seems to me you're, we're not gonna go back to a period in which uh, everyone gets a trophy as far as uh, the, a cheap cost of capital.
0: So quality will count again is one of the things I believe that you're so. telling clients very much so. Telehealth, you think that telehealth is going to be here to stay?
1: Yes, I think that you know that's something that's relatively new um, as far as um, from a legislative point of view in terms of reimbursement rates, the fact that people are somewhat afraid of, of visiting their doctor or we still want to visit their doctor but not necessarily want to go to the office. I think all of those things. Are going, or have already had a, a very, very meaningful change just in six weeks. The number of people using telehealth services has skyrocketed in just r- really just the last month. So, and, and I think it's it's unlikely to change that much uh, on the other side of this.
0: And to get specific, I think you mentioned in a report United Healthcare and Anthem would, would, right. be, two, uh, Te- would be two big would winners. Teledoc would
1: an- be another one. That's right.
0: Right. Jason, one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, what would you have us consider?
1: I like, I like the stock Amgen, a- A-M-G-N, and I think, uh, obviously, it's one of the biggest biotech companies uh, in the country, in the world, uh, and in my opinion, uh, biotech is going to be a big winner. Pharmaceutical stocks and healthcare will be big winners, generally speaking. But I think Amgen in particular, is a, it's a very good company. It's a very solid company. It's trading at a very reasonable multiple with a decent dividend. And so all of those things put together, it, it seems to me, will be a winner. Healthcare will, coming out of this, there's going to be a lot more government money going towards the healthcare space. Uh, and there's obviously a very strong correlation between uh, companies, how they do, how they perform in the stock market, and and government spending.
0: Jason Trunet, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you so much for joining Thank us you. on Wealth
1: Track. Thank you.
0: At the close of every Wealth Track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is sit on your hands. We are experiencing an unprecedented period where economies have been shut down by government decree. As legendary investor Charlie Munger said in a recent interview with The Wall Street Journal's Jason Zweig, business is frozen. No one knows what is going to happen next, and sometimes the best thing to do is sit on your fanny. Munger used a stronger term. Unless you are incredibly uncomfortable with your investments, wait for the storm to pass before making any dramatic moves. Next week, Wall Street's long-reigning number one economist Ed Hyman explains why the economy seems to be going from really bad to better. In the meantime, please go to our website wealthtalk.com, where you can access more interviews with Trennert and other financial thought leaders and great investors. And please continue to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for spending your precious time with us. We hope you all stay healthy and safe and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.